Good morning. morning. I want to welcome you across all of our campuses. We've had a great worship time at each campus, and now it's so good to be able to join together to hear God's word and to see what he has to speak to us today. Uh, We appreciate, Lori and I do, all your prayers, uh, and thank you for your support of our family over the last uh, weeks, especially these last uh, days. Uh, Our little grandson's uh, life was short. Uh, but, but deeply impactful. And uh, God was so gracious in, in keeping uh, Lori and I here. We had a planned trip, a conference I was supposed to speak at, and God was able to uh, keep us from going on that with his timing, and, and uh, we were able to experience such a special time uh, with Jay and then with Brittany and Josiah. And God is always good, and we thank you so much for your prayers and support, and uh, we are just privileged uh, to be a part of this church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are, you are always good. And uh, we know that each person here, Lord, uh, everyone's going through uh, some stuff. And I pray that you would um, speak to our hearts as only you can do. I pray, Lord, that uh, uh, every person here, uh, as we go through the, the, the joys and challenges of life, Uh, that you would meet us there, that you would meet our needs, and that you would take us to that place that you want us to be. We know in our lives, and we're going to see again today, that you never waste our time. Whatever you're doing in our life today, you're, you're preparing us for something you have for us tomorrow. And we pray, Father, that we would be good learners, that we would be good listeners, and that we would be, Lord, those who, who really desire to hear from you. We thank you, Father, that we can come through technology, we can meet uh, throughout our campuses, and Lord, with one voice from here at the South Hills and in Robinson and Washington, in Ross Traver and Wilkinsburg and DeBerry, those joining us online, Father, right now, as, as those who uh, are, are believers in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We want to pray as he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of First John. It's in the New Testament. It's easy to find. You just find the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. You go back to Jude. You go back to Third John, Second John, and you are at First John. We're going to start a series in this book today, and what I want to do is three things. First, I want to make sure we understand who the writer of 1 John is. He is a fascinating individual in the New Testament. Then we're going to look at the five reasons he wrote the book. Five reasons. If you want to follow along and take notes, those are in your bulletins, your programs, uh, your sermon notes. And then at the end of the service, about the last 15 minutes of the service, we have a great story to tell. And it's a God story, and we're going to see how God never wastes our time. So the first thing we want to do is to introduce ourselves to this man named John. He's not John the Baptist. He is John the disciple, and we are first introduced to him in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus calls his first disciples. Matthew 4, 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I love this. Immediately, right then and there. They left their nets, and they followed him. Jesus is walking a little further on, and he sees two more brothers. They're fishermen as well. 
James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, they're in a boat with Zebedee, their father. They're mending their nets, and he called to them, and check this out, immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed Jesus. And I want you to think about going to work tomorrow morning. You are in the midst of your work. This is your business. This is your livelihood. This is what you do to put food on the table. And Jesus comes and says, follow me. And immediately, what do you do? You leave everything and you follow him. That's what Peter, Andrew, James, and John did. When you think of these men, I want you to think of men's men. I want you to think of these guys who are out all night fishing. Then they come in in the early morning and they get their nets ready. And then they go do the paperwork of business of selling the fish. These men have weathered skin out in the elements all the time. Uh, these men, their, their, the muscles in their arms and their back are pronounced with their work. Their hands, if you shook their hands, you would feel the calluses of hard working man's hands. I imagine their arms were peppered with scars from the nets and the fish. Again, these men left everything and followed Jesus. The two brothers, James and John, are inseparable. Whenever you're reading about them in Scripture, if you're reading about James, there's John. And if you're reading about John, there's James. There's only one time in Scripture where James speaks on his own without a reference to James. Jesus gave three disciples nicknames. You know who they are. Simon, he called what? Peter in Greek, Petros, the rock. And then these two brothers, James and John, he called, anyone know? Sons of Thunder, and they deserved their nickname. They were brash. They were hot-headed. They were quick-tempered like loud, rumbling, rolling thunder. They were rigid in their thinking. They saw everything in black and white, no gray for James and John. They were intolerant, and they were selfishly ambitious. One day, Jesus was on uh, his way to Jerusalem with the disciples, and he told some messengers, go to Samaria and tell them, we're headed to Jerusalem, we're going to stop in Samaria, and we want you to get some food ready, and we want you to get a place for us to stay. When the messengers went and relayed this message to those in Samaria, they said, Ain't no way we're having the Jews that we hate headed to Jerusalem, we are not going to have them come, we're not going to provide food for them, and we're not going to provide a place to stay. You go back and tell Jesus. And so they did, and Luke chapter 9 says, when, when disciples heard this, James and John said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Let's just zap them right now. <laughs> we have no patience for people like that. Now, there's no record ever in Scripture of the disciples calling fire from heaven. But James and John were ready to do it. And Jesus rebuked them. I just wonder what he said and how long it went on. <laughs> Another time, John was with a guy, or saw a guy, and the guy was casting out demons in Jesus' name. By the way, this is the only time we hear John speaking on his own. And he goes to this guy, and he says, stop it. You can't do that. You're not one of the 12 disciples. You're not one of us. You stop it. He may have been, uh, there may have been an altercation. We don't know. For sure, he raised his voice. You're not in the in group. You're not one of us. You can't do that. And Jesus rebuked him and said, don't do that. If he's using my name, maybe that's not such a bad thing, John. Another time, in Matthew chapter 20, thinking they could use their mom for a little manipulation with Jesus, they convinced her to go to Jesus and talk to him about a certain position they wanted. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and dealing before him, she asked for him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say to these two sons of mine, uh, that they are to set one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. And Jesus said, you really don't know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink? Now he looks at the James and John. He said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm drinking? And they have no idea what Jesus is getting ready to go. He's getting ready to die on a cross. And they say, yeah, we'll do it. We can do it. We're able. And he said, well, you're going to suffer. You're going to drink a cup. But to set up my right hand and my left, it's not mine to grant. But it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And, verse 24, when the other disciples heard this, the ten were indignant at the two brothers. You can only imagine. Brash, intolerant, ambitious, and it was these disciples with nicknames, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus chose as his inner circle. In Mark chapter 6, when Jesus is getting ready to heal Jairus' daughter. Remember that story? The other disciples stay outside. He invites Peter, James, and John inside. When Jesus goes to the mountain and he meets with Elijah and he meets with Moses, the Mount of Transfiguration, he's transfigured before their eyes. You know who's with him, don't you? Peter, James, and John. It's John who sits right next to Jesus at the Last Supper. And when Jesus goes to pray at Gethsemane, it is Peter, James, and John that he takes with him. And he says, you guys stay here. I'm going to go a little further and pray. When he came back, he went three times. Each time when he came back, they were asleep. And then the soldiers came, and all the disciples ran away. But you know what? John came back. And John followed Jesus at a distance through his temptations. And it was John who stood at the foot of the cross right by Mary. And Jesus looked down and told John to take care of Mary. One commentator says, Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. Jesus told John, take care of my mom. And that's exactly what John did. Church history says John stayed in Jerusalem and cared for Mary until the day that she died. John walked up close and personal to Jesus. He saw Jesus. He touched Jesus. He looked into Jesus' eyes. And so when he writes 1 John, he establishes from the very beginning, we'll look at this next time, he establishes from the very beginning the historical Jesus. He says in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, all the things that Jesus did from the beginning, which we have heard, we heard him with our own ears, which we have seen, we saw him with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, we watched him do these miracles, and we touched him with our hands, this is the Jesus that I want to present to you. He is real. He is fully God. He's fully man. And he'll change your life. Church history says that John stayed in Jerusalem until around 67 A.D. Uh, the, Rome, the persecution was starting to break out in the early church. And, and uh, the, the Christians there knew that uh, the Roman army was coming in in 70 A.D. They, they destroyed the temple about 67 A.D., about three years before that. Many of them left Jerusalem and went to other places. And church history tells us that John went and was a leader at the church in Ephesus, the church that Paul had started on his second missionary journey. And there as an elder statesman in the church, sometime, we don't know when it was, sometime between 85 and 95 A.D., John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then later he wrote the Revelation. And in the next weeks, we're going to focus on these letters. And it's interesting that these letters were written from Ephesus, and he writes them to the churches surrounding Ephesus. So here's Ephesus, and he writes them to the churches surrounding Ephesus, which many of them are the same churches that are listed in Revelation. 
Smyrna, which is now present-day Izmir, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, the churches he writes to. And he writes for five reasons. We're going to drill down on these reasons as we go through the book. Just a quick overview today. Here's reason number one. He writes to encourage Christian belonging. Every believer needs to belong in the body. And John writes to encourage us. John chapter 1, verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, and we do that so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That word fellowship is this rich New Testament word, koinonia. It's much more than friendship. It's much more than hanging out with each other. It is a deep belonging, a kindred spirit, an honest relationship where you walk with each other and you interact with each other. And when you go into a tough time, that person is right there for you. That's the koinonia of the New Testament church. That's the koinonia John's writing about. That's a koinonia we want to have here at the Bible Chapel. We'll talk more about that as we go through the book to encourage true Christian belonging. And there's a second reason he writes, to help believers experience true joy. In John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, we write this to make our joy complete. You say, well, John, that's a little selfish. Why do you want to make your joy complete? Well, he, remember, the best commentator of Scripture is what? Scripture. So later on in John, 3 John chapter 1, verse 4, he says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Many of you have kids, right? I mean, there's nothing, nothing that brings you more joy than to know that your kids are walking with the Lord, is there? I mean, everything else is like low shelf. To know your kids are walking with the Lord. And John, as now an elder statesman at the church, writing to these believers, he says, it gives me no greater joy than to know that you're walking in the truth. And that joy is not only his, but it's the joy that all Christians should experience. The joy here, and we'll talk more about this, is not based on our circumstances because our circumstances are up and down. But a joy is a deep, settled peace, that deep, settled calmness, that confidence of knowing that you are a child of God and will forever be. And that can never change. You see, true Christian joy is not based on what's going on today. True Christian joy is based on what Jesus did in the past and what I know he's going to do for me in the future. And it never changes. That's settled. That's done. And John writes so that they can experience, the church, us, can experience true Christian joy. Number three, to help believers avoid giving into patterns of sin. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, in John's theology, he knew the Holy Spirit lives within us, and we don't have to sin. John says there are patterns of sin that don't exist in the believer's life. We'll see what he says about that as we go through the book patterns of sin. It's not a one-off sin. It's a pattern of sin he's talking about. I'm going to write these things to you. I want to warn you. I want to encourage you. Let's, let's not sin. Let's not give in to patterns of sin. But John was realistic too. And he said, you're going to sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous one. Man, we have someone who is always there, who's already done the work of forgiveness who will forgive us of our sin and keep us in that right standing with the living God. Number four, John writes, fourth reason, to guard believers from teaching filled with error, from false teaching. First John 2.26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. It's crazy, but in the early church, we're talking about 100 AD or, or before 100 AD at this time. Church hadn't been going on for 70 years, and there's all kinds of false teaching going around, false teaching about Jesus, his person, false teaching about how you come to know Jesus, all kinds of things going on. And there are a few things going on today too, right? 
some false teaching all over the internet, all over the radio, all over television, in many books. How do you know what's true and how do you know what's false? Man, that's an important question, isn't it? And so John says, I want to teach you what's true so you can discover what's false. And I'm going to warn you that there are people out there trying to deceive you. They can't take away your salvation, but they can certainly put you on the sidelines with false teaching. John says, you've got to know what's true so you can understand what's false. We'll talk, we'll get into that actually some next time. Here's the last one. And this may be the overriding reason John chapter 5, verse 13, to allow believers to know that they are children of God and will forever be. I write these things to you who believe. I'm writing you to, to Christians who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Can you know you have eternal life? Absolutely. John says, I'm writing these things to you so you can know for certain, not maybe, not I hope, not I'm going to stand before God and I hope he's going to weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds and I hope he gives me a thumbs up and lets me in. Man, you want to risk your eternity on your good deeds versus your bad deeds? I don't want to do that. And John says you can know beyond any doubt. Now, sometimes as a believer, I admit it, there are times... Sometimes, not often, sometimes, when I'm trying to go to sleep. You ever have those times when you're trying to go to sleep? And you start thinking about stuff, and you think, is this for real? Jesus died on a cross for my sins, and I trust in him, and I have eternity. Is this for real? Sometimes doubts and uncertainties come to believers. And John says, I don't want you to have those doubts. You're going to have them, but I, I want to assure you, you can know for certain that you have eternal life without a doubt. Some of you may be here today and you think, well, I can't know. I've got to work my way to God. I've got to do these good things. John says, no, it's not about that. It's not about you doing things to reach God. It's about God coming down and reaching you through his son, Jesus Christ, who did all the work for you, you can't add one thing to it, and because of Jesus, you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you know that you know. If there is nothing else you get out of the series, nothing else, I pray that's what you get out of it, that you walk away from this with the absolute confidence of knowing that when you close your eyes in death, 10 years from now, an hour from now. 20 years from now. I don't know what's going to be. When you close your eyes in death, you'll wake up and see Jesus. You know that because of what Jesus has done for you. The son of thunder. Man, he was loud. He was abrasive. He was ambitious. He was ready to call fire down from heaven. As one, as one commentator says, John aged well. He mellowed. He never backed down on the truth. Man, when you read the Gospel of John or 1 John, he's talking about light. He's always got contrast. Light and darkness. Heaven, hell. Eternal life, eternal damnation. John just says it as it is. You, you say you walk in the truth. You, if, if you're in the darkness, you're a liar, and the truth isn't in you. I mean, he is black and white, and yet, and yet, he balances the truth with love. So the son of thunder, the nickname Jesus gave him, you know what history calls him, church history? The apostle of love. Isn't that crazy? He, he learned the balance. He learned you can be a Christian without being a jerk. You know what? The world needs to know that, right? <laughs> truth without love leads to a judgmental spirit, harshness, legalism. And if you get involved in legalism, I guarantee you, I grew up in that, you will always be a hypocrite. 
because you're going to trip somewhere along the way. Truth without love is harsh. On the other hand, love without truth, that's like, that's just relativism. Anything goes. Believe anything, do anything. Permissiveness. That doesn't work. But how about this? Truth and love married together. That's what we learn in 1 John. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the love chapter, right? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but love rejoices with what? The truth. In Ephesians, Paul says it this way, speaking the truth in love. Man, if we could get that one down. Speak the truth in love. I'm not going to back down on the truth, but I'm going to say it in a way that's loving and caring and compassionate. Son of Thunder became the apostle of love. Pretty amazing. Right after Jesus ascended to heaven, the church began, and right after it began, there was persecution. Stephen was the first Christian to be martyred. You know who the second Christian to be martyred was? James, John's brother, Herod put him to death. And so here James, inseparable from his brother. James and John, inseparable. Now James is gone, and John's on his own. John continued his ministry. Uh, as I said, he stayed in Jerusalem, took care of Mary, left Jerusalem around 67 A.D., and then went to Ephesus in 81 A.D., the Roman emperor Domitian started his reign, and the second great persecution of the church began. Uh, we don't know exactly when it happened. Uh, persecutions always started in Rome, and then they made their way out. So Ephesus is a good distance from Rome, so it probably took some time to get to Ephesus. But when persecution reached Ephesus, John was banished to the Isle of Patmos. So here he was in Ephesus, persecution comes, and they banish him to this prison island of Patmos. And in Patmos, he writes the Revelation. I've been to Patmos, and, uh, and you go and you see this cave that John is supposed to have written the Revelation, and it is a little cave. He would have he slept on, the, on rock, a meager diet, and when you look at the cave, you can't, you, I, I said to myself, you know, I just said to myself, this can't be where the revelation was written, but it was. And then after he was there, after Domitian died in 96 AD, John was able to go back to Ephesus, and that's where he lived out the rest of his life. Church history says he died around 98 AD, the last of the apostles. The church leader, Jerome, wrote a commentary on Galatians, and in his commentary, he said that during his final days, John was so frail that he had to be carried into church. And as he was carried into church, John would repeat this phrase, my little children love one another. My little children love one another. Until finally someone said, John, why do you keep saying that? Here's what he said, according to church history. It is the Lord's command and if this alone be done, it is enough. If it starts with love, it is enough. Remember what Jesus said? If you love me, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. Today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior... We would love to help you come to know him. If you're here and you're seeking, and if you're seeking, that means God's working in your heart, we would love to have a conversation with you and help you find what you're looking for, and that's Jesus Christ. After the service, there'll be those up here who would love to pray with you, elders and pastoral staff, or you can call us, email us, Again, we want to help you find Jesus and begin that walk with him. And we're going to have a great time going through 1 John together.
But right now, I want to tell you a story, or I'm going to have someone tell a story. 2012, I was standing right here preaching on a Saturday night, and there was a couple right here, and uh, brand new, and after the service, I went up to them, I introduced myself, and they said, yeah, yeah we're here, we just moved from, uh, we were in Dallas for a while, and they told me the church they went to in Dallas, I knew about the church, and I said, and they never come back here to this church. Our church is a lot different than that, that church. And they did, they came back, and um, Lorraine Shipman and Mark Shipman, their names, and Lorraine started working with our youth in 2012. She volunteered. She had a passion to work with youth. She was given all kinds of hours as a volunteer. And then in around 2014, we brought her on to the staff. And uh, just more recently, she is the director of all of our youth ministries, overseeing uh, the fifth and sixth graders, what we call 56, that she started and uh, then the junior high and high school. And Lorraine and Mark are moving uh, to California. And so uh, they're going to have to, Lorraine's having to step down from her position here. The reason they're moving is an amazing story that I wanted you to hear. And so I want you to welcome Lorraine Shipman, and we're going to hear her story. <clears throat> So Lorraine uh, doesn't know this, but we're taking a vote after church to see if she can leave or not. <laughs> Pretty sure it's not going to go the way you want it to go. Yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> we did an hour, uh, before our staff, uh, we did an hour-long interview uh, with Lorraine, and that interview is on our website. It's right on the front page of our website. So this is just a little teaser today uh, as, uh, as a lot of people come in. Uh, a little teaser today, about 15 minutes of Lorraine being able to share her story. And I just encourage you to go to the website and listen to the, it's an hour long there, and you can hear, you can hear the deal. So, so Lorraine, let's start at your beginning, all right? So you were adopted. Uh, you were adopted into a difficult situation. Uh, there was emotional abuse with your mom. Uh, there was sexual abuse with your dad. Um, your brother was killed in a car crash, which just devastated the family even more. Um, talk, talk about your home situation and what it was like and where you found um, safety and refuge. So I grew up going to church, but I would not say I grew up in a Christian home. Um, it was kind of just a building we'd go to, hear a feel-good message, and go on with our day. And so I never saw faith practice at home, but at an early age, I had a love for church. It was a place that I felt welcome, I felt safe, and I felt loved. And that was something I wasn't getting at home. It was in junior high at camp um, that I came across some other girls um, crying in the bathroom, and they had also been abused in some way. And so we went and talked to a youth counselor, and it was that night that that counselor shared the gospel message and we accepted Christ. And after that, I poured into youth group, church. That was my escape from my home life. Um, it played a huge role in my life to the point that I don't know where I'd be today without the church and with youth group, um, especially after my brother died. You know, a lot of times families come closer together during that time and we just went further apart and I just wanted to be with my, my fa church family at that time. We'll talk about this through the First John series, but it's interesting. You kind of fell in love with, with fellowship mm -hmm. before you fell in love with Christ. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah, the community was amazing. The community is what led you to Jesus. So you got some stuff going on in your, in your background, and uh, you've got you to deal with the situation with your dad. So you've got to deal with forgiveness. Are you going to forgive him or not? Um, Talk about that process. How do, you, how do you deal with that? So early on, I chose to forgive my dad, and it was something for me, not necessarily for him. Um, when you have something so heavy like that, it, it consumes you. You know, it's hard to find joy in life. And so I found that it was, you know, it made me feel bad about myself. Um, I struggled with trust with other people. 
And it even affected my relationship with God. And so forgiving my father just was this heavy load off of me um, and, and an opportunity for me to go on with my life. Um, it does help my dad ask for forgiveness later on, um, but that doesn't change our relationship. We, I respect him as a parent, but I don't have a father-daughter relationship. It wasn't something I could bring myself to do or needed to do, um, but I have forgiven him, and it was a huge part of, of my life of being able to move on. I, I hope everyone uh, listens to the longer interview because I think that aspect of forgiveness is so important. Uh, you can forgive someone, right? But not, again, enter into, you can't go back and change what happened and you can't enter into that familial relationship now, but you can still forgive and move on with your life. Yeah. And I think that's a part of forgiveness that a lot of people miss. And so I think that's a great part of your story. So your parents uh, ended up divorcing and uh, your mom moved to Las Vegas and you didn't want to move there. So you move in with this friend, Dana, tell that part of the story. So yeah, I, um, my mom wanted to move to Las Vegas with her boyfriend after my brother died and I was completely devastated. Um, and I was devastated because I didn't want to leave my church family. And also we had this horrible relationship. So I just didn't know, you know, the fear of the future of being in Las Vegas scared me. Um, I met Dana on a mission trip. She was brought by a friend. She didn't even attend our church. And we became best friends instantly. She was someone that I could trust and shared what was going on at home. And she went home and asked her mom, can Lorraine come live with us? And her mom's response was, who's Lorraine? <laughs> um, and her mom prayed about it. She was a strong Christian and just felt God calling her to open up her home for me. So I lived with Dana and Carla through high school. Um, went off to college in about a year and a half in college. Dana died in a car wreck. So that's had to be pretty devastating. Yeah, it really was because she was the first person to really teach me about unconditional love. Um, it was really the first experience I had that and they just really believed in me and really helped me get through high school. So now you're taking some hard hits here early on in your life. And uh, so after that, you uh, moved to Texas, and uh, some great things happened there, some difficult things happened there. So you move in with the family, and then you uh, get your own place, and uh, you, you were sexually assaulted by a stranger. You go, th you go through that, healing, counseling, the courts, the whole bit, and then in kind of the recovery mode, I think, you meet a guy, and you date, you get married, and then that relationship ends after a year in divorce. So kind of talk about that period. What are your thoughts about God during that time? So I moved to Texas and I didn't get involved in a church, which I think is a huge thing. Um, I was college age. Most churches don't have college programs. Um, and so when I was attacked, I, I turned my back on God. Um, I still believed him as a creator, but I thought, how could a God, how is this going to glorify him and what could be his purpose and plan? So I didn't believe he had an active role in our life. And I got this attitude, I'm the only one that can protect me. So I was far from God. Um, and it didn't help um, with my ex that he kind of felt the same way. He grew up in church, but he had had some difficult things happen. So God was not the center of our marriage, um, and both of us were extremely far from him. It was, it was difficult. I was, I was hurting. I didn't know it was okay to get mad with God, which I eventually did. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're, you're wondering if anyone, if you can be loved, right? Yeah, that was a huge thing. I thought after my divorce, I struggled with, why can't anybody love me? I mean, first I was put up for adoption, was adopted into abusive family, um, I lose Dana, you know, and then I'm in this failed marriage. And so my answer all the time was, why can't anyone answer? And eventually God revealed to me that he loved me and he filled that void. By God's grace, uh, we'll fast forward a bit. You guys got to watch this hour long. Did I mention there's an hour long video? <laughs> um, by God's grace, you find a great church in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. You learn about God's grace. Mm-hmm. You learn that he does fill that void and that he loves you. And you start working with the, because your passion is with youth, 
you start working with the youth of that church, you met and married Mark, uh, and you moved, guys moved to Pennsylvania first and then, and then Pittsburgh, uh, and you started working with the youth group here, and again, I told that part that uh, we've just uh, been the beneficiaries of, uh, of you uh, leading our youth here. We so appreciate that. And so then um, you decide one day to spit in a tube. Yes. So I, um, I've never wanted to find my birth parents, to be honest. I never wanted them to know my story of the family I was adopted into. And one of the most things, frustrating things about being adopted is knowing nothing about your background, especially the health portion of it and your your family history. And so I um, came across DNA testing, 23andMe on television, did some reading on reviews, kind of had mixed feelings about it and just decided, you know, what the heck, I'm gonna order the kit, spit in a tube and send it off. And it's really not the site. It's, it's can, not that easy to do. No, it's not that easy to spit in you a tube. You have to spit for a long time. <laughs> you do. And you can't eat or drink 30 minutes beforehand, yeah. so. Okay. Um, so I sent it off, I get it back a month later, and I look at my DNA ancestry, I look at the health, and then they do have a DNA relative, but it's not really the site that you do that. But I told Mark, maybe I'll find a fourth or fifth cousin. And I looked on there, and the very first thing comes up is I have 50% DNA match, and we predict David Mexico to be your father. Um, I didn't know what to think. They <laughs> to say be that honest. on there. We yeah, predict we predict this guy to be your father. Yes. So you can do messenger on there, like Facebook and Instagram. So I sent a message just saying, um, "I'm new to 23andMe. This is weird. I'm not sure what to think. But did you put up a kid for adoption 45 years ago? And um, if so, what state? Because I don't need any more crazies in my life. <laughs> I have plenty of those. And he came back and asked me my birthday, and so I ended up sharing that with him. And after going back and forth, come to find out him and my mom have been married um, for 45 years, and I have siblings, and we connected the dots that they were my parents. Hmm. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You've been rejected a lot in your life, mm -hmm. and this is another opportunity to be really hurt. So talk about the conversation that went on with your parents and how all that transpired. So they had to, um, in the middle of us riding back and forth, they had a tragic that happened. They had lost their niece and her husband. And so they had asked for a few weeks, um, which during that time was really difficult for me. Um, because I didn't know what they were thinking, like if they wanted me part of their life. I have such a distorted view on family and this fear of rejection. I wasn't sure it was even something I wanted. Um, there's a song that became my theme song and still is, is God's Not Done With You Yet. And it talks about this fear of losing again and the scars and the wounds. Um, and God talking about he's gonna finish what he started and that he's got a plan and purpose for you. So I really just grasped hold of that plus guard my heart. And so after my birthday, I heard from them, which was difficult not to hear from them for my birthday because I'm like, I know they know it's my birthday. Yeah, it was pretty devastating. Yeah, too. it really was. And then on October 8th, I heard from my mom and this is what she wrote. Dear Lorraine, we are struggling over how to begin this letter to someone we hope will let us enter our life. We want you to know, though life has gone on and time has passed, you have always remained in our thoughts and prayers. We could never forget you, and the time around your birthday has always been difficult for us. We hope you can feel our love. We pray that your life was slash is a good one. Like I said before, we met when we were 16, we had you at 18, and got married when we were 19. It was a very difficult decision for us to put you up for adoption, but felt it was the best option for you. You have siblings, Valerie and Michael. Both are married and have two children each. There's so much more to tell you, and we hope you'll let us do so in person. We felt for the longest time we didn't have the right to disrupt your life. So here we are, afraid you will reject us, but praying you'll want to know us. 
We know we cannot go back and get back the years, but we hope we can have the future in whatever way you're prepared to let us be part of your life. No matter how you respond, know that we will always love you in our heart and we'll always be sorry you had to be adopted and we could not raise you. With all our love, David and Gail, the other parents who have never forgotten you. Wow. So Lorraine, you, um, man, I don't, I don't know how, how were you feeling when you read that? The emotions all over. I mean, it was, it was great knowing um, that they've always loved me. Um, you know, God really was just speaking to me during that time as, you know, he's going to finish what he started. And I still was a little guarded at first, you know, because I still had my story to tell them. Right. So you wrote back and you said, okay, I'm, I, I'm up for this, but you got to know everything that happened. You laid it on the table. Yeah. I, t I told him that. Um, I, I read the letter in, in the video. Um, the video that you guys are going to watch. <laughs> um, so I did. I, I told them, you know, that I didn't tell them because I wanted them to feel guilty or regret their decision, but more than any, anything for them to understand who I, who I am as a person, why I do what I do, my passion for youth, um, and how important um, Christ has been through all of this. I mean, it's, it's his strength that has gotten me through all of this. And I hope, in a sense, they would be proud of who I am today. So it was really important for me to reveal that, and I did it from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So um, they invite you guys out for Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. So you and Mark went, and you spent Thanksgiving with your new family. And by the way, they had to tell everybody else in their family what happened because yeah. no one else knew. No one knew. And so here's, uh, here's the fam, <laughs> the new family. And then your sister, she looks a little bit like you, the next one. Nope. That's the <laughs> next one. How about the one? sister picture? <laughs> Here you go. You guys look a little bit alike. A I'd little say. bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taller. <laughs> <laughs> so you go spend Thanksgiving. You head back at Christmas. And now you just feel like God wants you guys to move out there and, and just embrace this part of your life that you never had for these 40 whatever years and God's not done writing your story. No, we felt God just, we've been praying about and just felt God calling us to be with family. Um, we talked about Texas where Mark's family is um, or California and we just feel like time's short. We don't have a whole, whole lot of time and want to spend that time in California. And then the most incredible part of the whole story is they want to adopt me. Um, which I didn't know you could even do that. Um, and so they're going to adopt me. We're going to start the process when I go out there in March. Yeah. Very, 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 very cool. So, Lorraine, we're going to wrap this up. So if people are going to listen just for the next three minutes, summarize what you want them to walk away from. This is God's story, right? Mm -hmm. Summarize for them what you want them to take away from this, from God's story that he's writing in your life. First off, it's just, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. I have done life where God is just a distant. I just had him whenever I needed him. Um, I've done it where I've turned my back away from God and then I'm doing life fully living for him. And having a relationship and living fully for him is the only way I've made things um, happen in my life and the strength that I have. And so I just pray that everybody in this room understands that. And if you don't know where you are with your relationship with Christ or don't know him, please talk to someone. Um, the other is power of forgiveness. That forgiveness is um, something more for you than anyone. And it's a choice and it's, it's so freeing to do that. And then the last one is just, God's not done with you. He's got a plan. Um, mine's been 46 years in the making, <laughs> um, but it's worth everything of it. I, I was blessed before this happened, and it's just been incredible that God's just like, I'm going to give this to you. Um, he's revealed to me that he has always loved me, and then my birth parents have always loved me. You know, just thinking... 
difficult time you had growing up that really pushed you to the church and that passion you've had for the church and the youth, man, we have just, God has used that so much here at the Bible Chapel. And so it's difficult, he never wastes our time. As no. difficult as it was, he used, he used those scars to just have a passion for youth and, and we were able to see that uh, take root here and uh, we're gonna we're gonna miss you. We're gonna miss your family, miss Mark, and your family. And what I want to do, uh, you've got this theme song, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Tarn Wells, right? Yep. God is not done with you. And by the way, God's not done with any of us. Um, you may have been able to relate to some of Lorraine's story, and He's not done with you. And so the worship team's gonna come out, and uh, they're gonna sing that over us, or we're gonna sing it with them. But right now. Uh, let's go down here, and uh, we're going to pray for you. Um, you'll be here a few weeks before you go. We're going to have everyone stand, if you would. And youth, if you guys, you teens, would come and surround Lorraine. And parents of teens, you're welcome to come down as well. And then we're going to pray, and then we're just going to stay here and turn around, and the worship team is going to lead us in this song, all right? If anyone else wants to come, you're welcome to do that. You guys get in a little closer. Surround. (laughs) They're scared of me. They're not scared of me. me. And they should be. (laughs) (laughs) Father, thank you so much for Lorraine. Thank you, Father, for the way you have worked in her life. We would not have written her story this way. There are some tough times, some painful times. But Lord, you used every one of them, just like you used the pain in all of our lives, to make her into the person that she is, to drive her to a safe place called community and church. And Father, in that community, you had a passion, a passion to introduce you to teenagers. And Lord, we so, so appreciate the ministry that Lorraine has done here. Lord, the cool thing is, uh, this is just the end of a chapter and a new chapter begins. So the story continues. And I pray that you would be with Lorraine, help she and Mark as they move to California to get plugged into a church and use that same passion and gift at that church and gifts at that church. And Father, we look forward, we look forward to hearing this next chapter because we know you're not done with her yet. We commission her to you. We commit her to you. Thank you for the time that you have allowed her to lead here. And Father, we're so thankful for, um, for what you're doing now in her life. Just protect her and watch over she and Mark as they go. And Father, for us here, remind every person, Lord, speak deep into a heart that's hurting and just let them know you are not done with them yet. You are writing their story and allow this song as they watch the words and read the words to the song, allow this song to speak deeply to them. I pray that in Christ's name, amen.